That's what a cactus ring sounds like. Welcome to Pelicanus. I'm your host, Austin Parker. Pelicanus is a documentary-style show about the movement that is and has been happening in the conservation field. We want this show to highlight the people and organizations that are making it their purpose to grow the conservation field, to make right the wrongs of our past, and to show how people have and still are making monumental differences in our world. We want this show to be the antithesis to the common idea that is all over our news channels that not only is the world dying, it's your fault. And not only is it your fault, there's nothing you can do about it. So, we are here to show that not only is there something that can be done, it is being done by dedicated scientists who have made conservation their life. That we can find optimism through science. Why the name Pelicanus? Pelicanus is the genus of the California brown pelican, a species that was at the brink of extinction because of our use of toxic chemicals. However, we brought this species back. We made the decision to reduce these toxins. We made the efforts necessary. So we want this species to serve as an example of how we, as a society, can have an enormous impact on the world around us. So today we're going to be talking to Suellen Lin. Suellen Lin is an ecologist with the United States Geological Survey out of the San Diego office. Suellen works with a lot of different species, mostly birds, such as California gnatcatchers, least bells vireos, and southwestern willow flycatchers. But today we're going to talk to Suellen about coastal cactus wrens. Coastal cactus wrens are a species that are near the brink. They've been in decline for the last decade or so. And they believe that they've been in decline mostly because of habitat fragmentation and destruction. This is an issue in coastal California due to development over the last 50 to 100 years. Coastal cactus wrens are the newest species that they've been looking at. They're conducting monitoring efforts to check whether or not the populations are declining. Coastal cactus wrens should be found all over San Diego County. But due to development, the place where you can find them now is out east, up in the hillsides. Today, we are at Sweetwater Reservoir. Sweetwater Reservoir is one of the water supplies for San Diego County residents, but it also has great habitat for cactus wrens. Sue Ellen Lynn has been in this field for over 25 years. She has a Bachelor's of Science from Stanford and a Master's in Science in Ecology from the University of Arizona. Sue Ellen and her husband John live out east in a town called Humboldt, where they've set up a bit of a rural lifestyle that is rare in Southern California. Her husband John is a biologist at the San Diego National Wildlife Refuge, so they're a bit of a conservation power couple. Thank you for listening to our show. Let's go straight to Suellen in the field and let's see if we can find some cactus friends today.
Today we're going to look at a species that's at the brink. At the brink. Yes, a population that's at the brink. Cactus wrens are actually, they're pretty common in the desert. But today we are at Sweetwater Reservoir. Sweetwater Reservoir is about 20 miles east of downtown San Diego and 20 miles north of the Mexican border. Sweetwater Reservoir has a lot of other rare species such as California gnatcatchers, beast bells vireos, southwestern willow flycatchers, and of course cactus wrens. But there are some isolated populations along the coast that have had different conservation status at different times depending on um, what, where in the process they are as far as listing is endangered or whatever. They're not listed, they're a state species of special concern. Okay. And the reason they're not listed is because the genetics of this population, it's a gradual change throughout its range to get to the desert species. So it's not a distinct genetic population, it's more of a gradual, I mean it is very different from the desert but there are populations in between that have like a gradation. Okay. Plus there's a lot of cactus wrens down in Baja that also share a lot of genetic similarities. So we are at cactus wren territory 64. This is our most successful territory. They've had two successful nests this year. Which is great because last year we had very little success at all in breeding cactus wrens. It was so dry. I think this year was better because the rains were later. This nest is actually, it's kind of funny. They, uh, they should have fledged about two weeks ago, but every time I go, I keep seeing fledglings sitting in the nest. And I think they're just going and roosting in it at night and they just don't, they don't they're not early risers. As it turns out, cactus wrens are a lot like us. They don't want to wake up in the morning either. So I'm hoping that they're out and about now. But if not, they're still alive. I see them moving. Gotcha. <laughs> the coastal cactus wren in general that goes from Baja up to Ventura is considered a, a subspecies. So cactus wrens are very common if you go out east into the deserts or down into Baja. So we asked Suellen, why this species? Why is this one on, a, on the brink? And why is this one so important? There are different, um, different people think that different parts of the population should be split out. And the San Diego one, back about, what, in 2011, we did a bunch of genetic sampling for the San Diego population at um, s several different geographically isolated cactus patches to see how connected they were genetically and if there was movement between these patches. And part of that was for the um, San Diego um, Habitat Management Plan, so MS, or the MSCP, the Multiple Species Conservation Plan, that um, is supposed to be preserving natural habitat throughout San Diego County for wildlife species and plant species. But it, it's not effective if the patches are not connected. And so the cactus wrens were one of the ones they were most worried about because they don't move very frequently. We have seen them move up to five kilometers. Just over three miles. But if your patches are more than five kilometers apart, then you're not gonna see any genetic mixing and then you can have real issues. Um, but yeah, usually it's just like they'll move a territory over or a couple territories over. Um, there's, Slow recovery. Yeah, I mean, there's, 
this looks like adequate habitat. It may be a little bit overgrown, um, but there's cactus here. They could use it. So, you know, we, we want to check every once in a while in case somebody dispersed out here. And like I said, it had that female show up on the other side of the reservoir a month ago. Right. Who knows who's going to show up. Cactus wren habitat is a pretty brutal place. They obviously they live in cactus, but they live but the cactus grows in these patches, as Sue Ellen calls them. Uh, these patches can be from you know 10 to 100 meters wide, from being very dense to not so dense, mixed in with some uh, coastal sage shrub plants. Um, but these patches are isolated; they're spread out all over East County. And when she says that they don't move over five kilometers, it means that they're not going to spread out because they need these patches to nest, to breed. That's a huge stress on these cactus due to development. When we destroy their habitat, we destroy these patches, they can't move further than five kilometers to find a new patch. So we're doing a comprehensive survey. We're doing a, a survey of all the plots twice a year this year. So we did them in April and May, and now we're doing June and July, the second round. Cactus wren breeding season starts around March and can go until July, maybe August. So I've looked here once, didn't find any, but trying again. So we have six, I believe, six or seven territories in this area that we have been monitoring since March. So we're, we go weekly, we check the nests, we watch the adults. We're trying to band all the adults with unique color combinations and also the nestlings. So we put colored leg bands on them so that we can recite them and identify who it is okay. and if they're staying in their spot. And then as the weeks go on and the fledglings start to disperse, we can see where they move by reciting them. And then next year, when we come out and start monitoring in March, we'll be able to find the cactus wrens with leg bands and know where they came from and know if they survived too. Great. That's a big part of it. These leg bands look exactly how you would think. They're little pieces of jewelry that they attach to one of their legs that can't slip over their feet. Uh, they don't harm the bird in any way. Uh, they give each bird a unique color combination. So when they come back and find the bird again, they'll know which bird it is based on which leg the band is on and what the color combination is. And you know, part of the survivorship is getting through the nesting stage too. So it's like productivity and survivorship are two different sides of the coin when you're talking okay. about conservation, which is why we're monitoring the nests as well. We're trying to see how many fledglings that they can produce, um, if they're producing at all. This is a crucial concept in conservation. It's not only enough to provide the habitat to where these birds can breed and lay eggs. These eggs and these nestlings need to move on to adult stages to continue on the population. And Suellen is part of the team that are monitoring these populations to see if they are making it past these nestling stages, if they are becoming adults. This to you, Ooh. there's a cactus round. There we go. I see him. This site has, this territory has only one fledgling. 
or it should have one fledgling. Last week it was still in the nest and it had a few more days to go before it would officially fledge. So we're looking for him today. That adult is clucking, which is an alarm call and it usually means he has something he's trying to protect. Clucking is a sound that cactus wrens make when they're not too happy with you. We heard this sound a lot. So I would not be surprised if the fledgling was right around, or even still in the nest. <laughs> There he is. There's the fledgling. White over silver on the left. That is this bird's unique color combination. She will be able to identify this bird for the rest of its life. That's the adult, just went over to it. The fledgling's behind this. Now he's on top of the yoga. Yep. Here we ask her to describe what she's seen. There's a about three birds up in a bush, and we're not exactly sure which is which. Those are two adults that are together on top of that jojoba, and then the fledgling, that one adult that just flew around the back of that bush went to the fledgling. So the fledgling's around back. And she's able to tell this so quickly because the adults don't have bands. She banded this juvenile weeks ago. Yes. Adults also look different because they have they have a more heavily marked throat, so they look like they have a black throat. The fledglings will be almost all uniform speckled all up and down the, the chest. So that's, that's great. Got another fledgling. You can tell Sue Ellen's excitement. She's monitoring these birds. She's watching the two adults come together. She's seeing the male court the female. She's seen them then lay eggs, and then she finds the nestlings, she bans the nestlings, and then she comes out a, a couple weeks later, and now this bird has fledged. Now it's, it's, it's survived to the next stage of its life. And so hopefully it'll survive until next year, where next year it can breed on its own and have its own babies and have its own eggs. So we asked Sue Ellen to explain this bird's life. What is the life history of this specific bird? Yes, so last week when I checked on Monday, it was 16 days old and they fledged between 19 and 23 days. So he could have fledged today. Hmm. Um, probably not though, because he's getting around really well. So when, um, when cactus runs, well, they'll build a nest and they can build a nest in a day. It can be really quickly. They'll lay an egg every day for usually four eggs, four or five eggs. They'll start incubating on the second egg and then they'll incubate for 16 days before they start hatching. The interesting thing about cactus wrens that's different than a lot of other um, altricial birds like this, and altricial meaning that they fledge when they're, after they've spent time in the nest, the adults have gotten them to a certain stage, then they can fledge. And as opposed to precocial like geese, mm. they hatch and they're already out of the nest. So altricial birds like this, usually they all hatch within a day of each other so that the competition, they're, they're all the same size. There's not one that's gonna outcompete the other. You know, it, it tends to make it easier on everyone if they're all similar age. Cactus runs, because they start incubating so early in the um, 
the laying process, they have asynchronous hatching, so they can have nestlings that are five days apart in age. So you can have a five-day-old nestling and a 10-day-old nestling in the same nest. They make it work, though. Yeah. They make it work. Those little things. Yeah. Yeah. We then wondered, how long after these birds fledge do they stick around with their parents? That's another unique thing about cactus wrens is that they, most birds, the, they will stay around for about two weeks to a month while the adults feed them and get them well on their way to you know, having enough fat and learning to survive on their own. Cactus wren juveniles will stay with their adults until the next breeding season. <laughs> Until the adults are like, okay, I'm ready to breed again. You got to get out of here. <laughs> you got to take them out of the house. Yeah. After finding that fledgling, we take our excitement to the next territory, which is clear on the other side of the reservoir. We drove our truck there. Took about 10 minutes. We parked at the base of this hill, where we found some really nice cactus and habitat. The hillside we're looking at is basically covered with cactus. Both species, the coastal choya as well as the coast prickly pear, the two most common species in this area. So we then asked Suellen, looking at this habitat, what is it exactly that cactus wrens need to survive? The cactus wrens really, well, cactus is necessary. And that's actually interesting because, well, they're called cactus wrens because that's <laughs> what the they're cactus. associated with. And here they really are closely associated with cactus. If there's no cactus, you're not gonna find cactus wrens. But you also need to have that artemisia and that areogonum, the, the sagebrush and the buckwheat. And one of the interesting things we find in almost all of our cactus wren territories is we usually have at least one elderberry. Mm. Really? Yeah. This one doesn't, but it's, I think it's, there's something about the um, insects that it attracts because they do eat insects. And so there's, or it's the, you know, the having a perch where they can sit on top and sing yeah. and advertise their territory. An elderberry is a type of tree, pretty large. Not exactly what you'd think you'd find in this type of habitat. The, this season we're doing, um, starting in a couple weeks, we're gonna be collecting arthropods, insects, in cactus wren territories where we're monitoring nests. So we can look at the abundance of particular types um, and just the overall abundance and the diversity, correlate that with how productive, how productive, excuse me, <laughs> the cactus wrens have been, how many young they've produced. Um, so that, and we're also going to be at the same sites, we'll be looking at vegetation. We'll be doing a, a percent cover estimating of different species and um, also trying to use that in correlating how well the cactus wrens are doing at that particular site. These are the kind of things you find in conservation research. You come into it having questions, and these questions may or may not get answered, but at the very least, or hopefully, these questions can lead to better questions, which is the basis of science. Yeah, I mean, who would have thought elderberry would have been something that we noticed? I mean, not necessarily something we noticed, but who would have thought it would have been important? It doesn't seem like a tree that you'd find commonly in the coastal sage scrub. Right, yeah. And then you look at this, the landscape here, it's like, you know, it's this bare kind of very thin topsoil, rocky soil with cactus and jojoba and 
buckwheat and things like that and artemisia. So there's not a lot of grass, there's not a lot of water up here, but right. it supports a very particular group of species. And yeah. you know, and I think a lot of people think of this as a wasteland. And, right. And this kind of thing, it would be easy to have in your yard. You know, if you, especially going through this huge drought that we have right now in California, if you could have something like this, you probably wouldn't want your dog to be playing in it. Right. But, you know, it would take very, you know, the initial effort of getting the plants out here, but, you know, you never have to water. Yeah. You know, and it has its own beauty. So after walking up and across the hillside, we get to this cactus patch that is pretty dense and Swillen points out a nest. So there's a nest right here that I want to look into. In order to get into the nest, Swillen has to gingerly walk towards the nest to be careful because she is surrounded by cactus at this point. She has to roll up her sleeve, take a wider stance, and gently snake her hand into the hole of the nest. So this is their nest that, yay, they finally fledged. Which she can tell because the nest is empty. They build these dome capsule nests within cactus. Um, and this one, you can see the, the mouth is wide open, and that's probably because the fledglings have been going in and out. Um, usually when they start building them, the, the hole is about the size of a, I don't know, a golf ball and it just gets wider and wider. But so they'll use one nest for broods, for the nestlings, but they'll also build a bunch of little roost nests that they'll, they'll use, um, like the adults will each have their own roost nest near the brood nest, so they don't necessarily have to be in with the nestlings. Most of the nests are built out of grasses and small twigs. Um, and they, they'll build the floor and it, they kind of build the walls up and then they'll build a dome over the top and a tunnel that comes out. Um, and then they'll line it with feathers and plant down. And so it can be a really soft like feather bed in there. Yeah, it's, it's really amazing nice. the contrast. I mean, it's right in the cholla. Yeah. Like the most scary looking plant you could imagine. <laughs> and you've got this uh, down comforter yeah. right in there. <laughs> See if you can fit your hand in there and just feel. <laughs> it's really nice. Like, careful there, though. There's a lot Go of stuff. So here I try to be as graceful as one by putting my hand in the nest as well. It's just woven. Yeah, there's no mud, nothing like that. There's... I don't... Unfortunately, I was unsuccessful. Yeah, I know. <laughs> That one is also one that's had a lot of the spines broken off, so it's uh, it's challenging to get in there. Yeah, it's actually, uh, I think that as the more you stick your hand in or the more they're moving in and out, the less spines there are. Or maybe I just have Teflon hands by now. Yeah. With her Teflon hands, Suella now explains the difference between brood nests and roost nests. Um. So this is probably a roost nest. There's a difference between the roost nests and the brood nests. The ones that they roost in tend to be shallower, so you can kind of see it's just, like that one that we saw the first, at the first territory, it was kind of level and easy to get into. It wasn't real deep. The brood nest tends to be real deep. Um, and then as the nestlings get older, they kind of build up the lining inside and it becomes more level. Huh. 
but they don't bother to make them real deep when they're just gonna roost in them. It's also probably a predator avoidance technique because if they put a bunch of nests out there, then predators are not going to know which one is the one they're using. Or if they find one, they think they found it and the, the only one, and they don't look for more. This predator avoidance technique is crucial in getting the nestlings into their next stage of their life, out into the open. And so since we didn't find any birds at this territory, Sue Ellen wanted to play a recording of the cactus wren call to see if we could lure one out into calling back at us or just coming near us so we could find it and record it. So yeah, I'll usually just walk along in cactus habitat, play the, the call, wait for a minute or two, see if anything shows up and then move 50 to 100 meters away play again. Oh. So this is a, just a normal call, what, what would they be? We're going to do, I'm going to play the song, the Cactus Wren song, and both the male and the female will make this song, but it's a territory advertisement. It's not an alarm call, it's not anything like that, it's just a, it's an advertisement and a contact sort of communication. So here we go. That's what a cactus shirt sounds like. These cactus friends must have been out to lunch because we didn't hear a call back. So we decided to jump back in the truck. We moved on to the next territory, which is further down the hillside on a completely separate, isolated cactus patch. So, here's more cactus. <laughs> this is another territory. This territory I'm very happy about. This is a, a male who was single until about three weeks ago. And then a female showed up and they laid an egg and then they laid two more eggs. Wow. Yeah, and she, I don't even know where she came from. Because there's no females missing from any of the territories around here. <laughs> At least the ones that we're monitoring. But you know, we don't get to every single cactus patch, so who knows where she could come from. But the interesting thing was too, that this, this uh, nest that they laid the egg in, the male had built it and it was, just sitting there empty for weeks and weeks and weeks. And then one day there was an egg in it. So she didn't build the nest. Wow. Huh. He built it and she just said, okay, this works. There you go. Yeah. This male instinctually built a nest without even having a mate with the hope that a female would show up and not only like the nest, but like him. I hear the clucking. Somebody's clucking. They're unhappy with us. Oh, I can see him. I can see him from out here. As Sue Ellen is readying herself to snake her hand into this nest, 
She realizes that she can see these birds from far away. She's standing about four feet away from the nest at this point. She gets really excited. You probably can't, I don't know if you can see, you can get in there with a camera because it's pretty dark, but there are definitely three little nestlings in there. Very cute. <laughs> oh yeah, look at them. Oh, here's a little light. Oh look my that. God. Isn't that cute? Can you see him, Austin? Yeah, yeah. Snuggled down. Because as she said earlier, this male was a single male without a mate for weeks. And then up until a couple weeks ago, a female came along and then they laid eggs. And now those eggs have become nestlings. So we're only there for a few minutes while Sue Ellen records the data. And here she explains why we need to move on. So we do try to not spend too much time like at the nest, just because you can attract the attention of predators like ravens and things. Corvids are apparently a real um, serious nest predator for cactus wrens. Corvids are species of predatory birds like crows, ravens, jays. And scrub jays in particular. Ravens not as it's harder for a raven to get in there, but they could pick apart that nest and. You know, just take the nest, the whole thing apart to get to the nestling. Smart. Yeah. <laughs> Given that this territory didn't even have a nesting pair, as recent as a few weeks ago, now it has a nesting pair, eggs, and now babies. That is a huge deal. They're making their way. They are trying and they are succeeding. Which then got us asking Sue Ellen, what is it that keeps you out here? What is it that gets you up in the morning? Why are you doing what you do? I think that the whole um, concept of endangered species is really why I'm doing this too. It's just because there's so, uh, there's so few of them left and there's so many impacts and so much pressure on wildlife in general and some species are much more sensitive than others and so as many people as we can have advocating for them and trying to you know do what's best learn what needs to be done and and work on that is that's my whole reason for being here so it's the conservation of species that are at the brink or threatened or endangered that got Sue Ellen into this field in the first place but then we asked, how do you stay positive? What keeps you here? There's a lot of people who get really depressed about it, but they're still here, you know? There's still a lot here, and there's still a lot to fight for or to protect. I guess I shouldn't say fight for because I'm not a fighting kind of person. <laughs> but uh... It's the fact that the species that are at the brink, that have been threatened or endangered that she's been working on, are still here, that with all the stresses that have been put on these populations due to habitat fragmentation or, or any other indirect impacts that they have been put on them, they're still here, they're still thriving, they're finding a way. 
It makes Suellen feel almost obligated to use her skills and her passions to try to help them and try to save them. But we wanted to know what inspires Suellen, what gets her up in the morning, what got her into this field. I mean, it's, you see, like, wild, the Wild Kingdom or moving beyond Wild Kingdom, Discovery Channel had a lot of, of stories about, you know, this species that's in peril. And, and it's hard not to let that affect you after a while. You're just like, oh my God, somebody needs to do something about this. <laughs> what can I do? Beyond just talking about it. Let's see if we can learn something and, and maybe have some concrete effect. Sue Ellen works hard every day to create that concrete effect, to make something tangible within the conservation field. But how does she get that across to the general public, the people that are not bird biologists? And how do they feel about what she does? So sometimes I think we focus on the negative because that's what's dramatic and that's what makes the best story. But I, and, and it seems like it comes up more, but I think that there are a lot of people out there who do care and just don't know what to do about it. Yeah. Or if you ask them, they would say, yeah, I'd support, I support what you're doing. But they just, they never thought about it. Right. They you know, like the idea that you're out there. Right. They like to, yeah. They like to come out here and see the wildlife, but they don't understand or they don't think about, you know, what is impacting them. Having an expert in the field like Sue Wellen that's able to find optimism through her research, through science, that can transcend all the negative rhetoric that we find on the everyday news channels or in regular conversation is crucial. The fact that she can find optimism through science proves that it is not all doom and gloom. Things can change and things are changing. And it's nice to know too, I and mean, you think, well, maybe they would have popped out babies even if we hadn't been preserving land, but no, they wouldn't have because the land wouldn't be there. So it's a, it's a combination of things and it's really gratifying to see that like yeah, we're working, and we haven't seen positive results for a while, but in a good year, when things are right, it starts happening. Yeah. Yeah, you just see a little bit of positive response, and you know that it's not all gloom and doom. Or you want to build it up so that, you know, so that when the good years happen, you get a fantastic year, and then they can, like, they've got that critical mass to make it on to the next good year. Raise that baseline. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think plants are a huge, a really good example of that. When you start planting natives and removing the exotics and suddenly you start seeing the birds coming back and you start seeing the butterflies and, you know, it has a, and, and it becomes beautiful and the water system, you know, the, the hydrological system revives. These are the tangible effects that Sue Ellen has been talking about. The raising baselines, the finding the critical mass of these species to where they can get to a certain point where they can survive, they can move on and create something called a positive feedback loop where small changes can build and have monumental effects.
Sue Ellen gets to work in some relatively remote places in San Diego County where you get to see things that most people don't even get to see. Yeah. I feel really privileged to be able to get out here and be able to have access to a place like this. And, you know, you see some amazing things when you're out here. Yeah. Like, you know, you do see, you see fledgling red tails, you see, you know, the harriers, you see snake tracks, you know, all the cool things that yeah. we saw today. Exactly. <laughs> I think I always thought when I was going to school, I always thought I wanted to get into a field where I could handle animals because you get that up close and personal experience. You get mm. to... Wild animals. Yeah, and wild animals, yeah. exactly. So I feel very fortunate that... Yeah that I've been able to do that. It's not that often that people actually get to hold wild animals. I never thought that was something I could do because it seems so exotic. You know, I'm not exotic. I'll never do that. And actually, the, the more I do it, the less I do it, if that makes sense. You know, the longer I've been doing it, the more I, I find ways to do the job without having to handle it. But I love seeing them. I mean, it's just, it's so fascinating to get out here and, oh, there he is again. He's back in the same place and he has a nest and this is so cool. But then equally as exciting as going back into the office and pulling all the data up and just being like, oh, and his nest was in the same place last year. Yeah. And he didn't breed, but he stuck, you know, he didn't have successful nests last year, but he stuck around and he's trying again. And maybe this year, you know, there's gonna be a better chance of them making it through. And, and then starting to see where, okay, I banded this bird here and it moved over to that site. And now that site's occupied. And so we're expanding the area that they're using, or they're filling in where we thought they should have been, but they weren't before. Right. Yeah, that's a lot of it, and a lot of it is just, you know, the pure joy of seeing wildlife. Right, of course. <laughs> and seeing wildlife thrive when it can, you know? I mean, it, uh, the, base, the base of it, that's really what it is, is that I want to see it thrive. I'd like to thank the National Park Service, the Cabrillo National Monument Conservancy, the Natural Resource Team at the Cabrillo National Monument. The other voice you heard is that of Taylor Parker. I'd like to thank him for all of his hard work on this project. Special thanks to Sue Ellen Lynn for letting us follow her around all day. She truly is amazing. If you'd like to learn more about Cactus Friends, our show, or even see some of the photos you might have heard us taking, Check us out at pelicanus.org, P-E-L-E-C-A-N-U-S.org. But you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Pelicanus Radio. All right, thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.